Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. New Atlas is reporting the world's first commercial electric plane completes point-to-point flight. Oh, mm. like Tesla, but in the air. Yeah. I mean, let's, not Tesla, because we, right, right, but better than Tesla, but in the air. It was a bit of a loaded <laughs> simile, but yes, to right. answer your real question. Harbor Air's de Havilland Beaver completed a short hop from the Canadian mainland to Vancouver Island using its all-electric drivetrain. Harbor Air is the largest seaplane airline in North America, and it claims to transport around half a million passengers across 30,000 commercial flights each year. In 2019, it pledged to become the world's first all-electric airline, a bold vision that mm. involves retrofitting its fleet of existing six-seater seaplanes with electric propulsion systems. And these systems come via a partnership with electric motor company Magnix, M-A-G-N-I capital X. Uh, <laughs> which I is object. making it <laughs> <laughs> I know at least they kept the vowels in. That's that's a nice return to normalcy yeah. in nomenclature. <laughs> and this company, Magnix, is making important advances with its high power electric motors and it's partnered with other ambitious companies in the aviation space. So in December 2019, the modified de Havilland Beaver took off to complete the first successful flight of an all-electric commercial aircraft. And it was just a brief jaunt above the Fraser River at Harbor Air's terminal in Richmond, British Columbia. But the company has since continued this testing program with an eye to certifying and approving the aircraft with both the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration and Transport Canada. Hmm. The plane took off at 8.12 a.m. from its Fraser River Terminal, and it landed at Patricia Bay on Vancouver Island 24 minutes later. And they even reported they had a lot of power left over. I would hope so, with a 24-minute <laughs> flight. Like... <laughs> well, you know, we're stretching these. Yeah. When they say high-powered motors, these are very high-powered motors. And mm -hmm. to be all electric, this is super promising, especially considering all the attention in recent weeks to celebrities and their private jets and, mm -hmm. you know, the carbon footprint that they have driving from, like, this part of L.A. to this other part of L.A. So if, hey, we can put them on the equivalent of, like, a golf cart but aerial, mm -hmm. I'd be happy with that. Yeah, no, I'm definitely on board with forcing celebrities into smaller, ricketier <laughs> airline planes. <laughs> and if that's the takeaway you get from today, let that be the takeaway. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Nature.com, and it's titled, Levitating Nanoparticles Could Push the Limits of Quantum Entanglement. Ooh, okay. it sounds kind of tristy. Those are yeah. all good words. I'm not sure I understand any of them in this context, yep. but... <laughs> we'll dig into it. So, physicists have suspended tiny glass spheres in a vacuum and made them interact with one another at a close distance. 
Romain Quadant, a physicist who conducts similar experiments at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, says this is certainly an important milestone which opens up new opportunities. The results were published on August 25th in Science, and levitating particles could one day act as a platform for quantum computing or pave the way for exquisitely sensitive measuring devices. Ooh, that's kinky. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it does seem like they're hinting at a whole new wave of tech with this. I know, but it's just so elegant. Exquisitement. Exquisite sensitivity. I'm sorry. (laughs) Who knew this whole time the way to get you into quantum mechanics was to make it sound like... (laughs) fanfic. Yeah, just make it very refined and a little spooky. The allure is simply irresistible. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) So over the past decade, physicists have measured various techniques for manipulating objects the size of virus particles, in particular using the gentle pressure exerted by laser light. And in the latest paper, Dilitz, Aspelmeyer, and their collaborators made the first move towards juggling multiple levitated particles. They bounced a laser off a liquid crystal panel inside a vacuum chamber, which split the beam into two. Next, they injected 200 nanometer-wide glass spheres into the chamber using an ultrasonic nebulizer, similar to devices used to treat asthma, until a nanosphere was caught in the focal point of each of the two laser beams. This optical levitation technique works because the rapid oscillations of the laser's electric field induce electric charges to appear equally rapidly at the opposite ends of each nanosphere, like the poles of a bar magnet. And as this polarization flips quickly back and forth, it acts like the electric current inside an antenna that emits electromagnetic waves. By adjusting the liquid crystal panels, researchers could bring the two focal points closer together. And at the distance of a few micrometers, the particles began to sense each other's waves, and the researchers could make them vibrate in unison, like masses connected by a series of springs. What? So yeah. so it's like, th- basically, their closeness of these little tiny things are basically, I don't know, some kind of like vibrating tune fork. Like, the closer they get to their, their loved one, they go, <laughs> and they just get like really happy and vibrate together. Yeah, that is kind of what I'm getting. Like, by being close together while levitating on top of these lasers with the oscillation, it polarizes them to each other, I suppose. And maybe there's an entanglement thing happening. I'm not sure if it happens at this point, but they're (laughs) levitating and vibing. That's for sure. (laughs) So turning the laser also allowed the team to turn off the force that one particle exerted on the other without turning off the opposing force from the second particle. This produced artificial laws of physics that seem to violate Isaac Newton's third law that for each action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Which, uh, I'll let you sit with that one for a bit. Yeah, (laughs) I don't like artificial laws of physics. That's like, you know, alternative facts. I'm not cool with that. (laughs) (laughs) Stickler says that the next task will be to use the laser light to cool both particles to their quantum ground state. And at that point, it could become possible to put the particles into a state of quantum entanglement, so that would happen after, meaning that some of their measurable properties, in this case their positions, are more strongly correlated than would be allowed by the laws of classical non-quantum physics. Another advantage of the levitation technique is that it should work just as well for trapping more than two particles. When applied to individual atoms or ions, levitation and laser cooling have been like a secret sauce in quantum computing, said Zoller, (laughs) and the same could happen with nanoparticles. All right, I'm going to leave secret sauce alone. I'm not touching it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the whole tone of this, uh, I think there really is something to saucy fanfic and dry science reporting. 
You know? Yeah, just imagine the entire thing read by Jeff Goldblum. Like just a little <laughs> sensual, a little Jeff you know. Goldblum. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, would, know, I would. I would. Attenborough. <laughs> that's more your speed. No, you get yeah, me that right? AI voice mock for Alan Rickman, and I'm in. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. I see where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, we have some interesting logistical news from Space.com called The Asteroid NASA Will Slam Into in September is Right Where Scientists Expected. Mm. Is that reassuring or not? (laughs) It is. It's good news. Obviously, we've been worried for several decades now about an asteroid striking Earth. And, you know, worried is maybe a little strong because the chances of a devastating dinosaur killer asteroid hitting us are pretty small on a day to day basis. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the chances of it happening over the long term are virtually guaranteed. Right. We've even had a few close calls in recent years, though, again, close in this context is relative. In 2017, the potentially hazardous asteroid known as 3122 Florence, which is about three to five miles wide, passed within 4.3 million miles of Earth. And in 2022, a kilometer-wide asteroid passed within just 1.2 million miles of our planet. And that, they say, is the closest that any major asteroid is expected to come within the next two centuries. But that's just considering things that we already know are orbiting in our vicinity. You know, there's Mm -hmm. always the chance that something comes straight at us out of deep space. And more importantly, if we do find something headed straight towards us, what are we going to do about it? (laughs) Right? So the good folks at NASA have been thinking about this. And of course, the easiest thing to do is to deflect the asteroid as far back from our planet as we can so that by the time it reaches us, its path has sufficiently diverged, right? We've all seen Armageddon. We know how this works. The question is, will it work? And it turns out that's a harder question to answer than you might think. Because while we can certainly pick a rock out in space and crash something into it, we want to know exactly how much what we did actually affected its path versus where it was just going to end up going in the first place. What's more, the asteroids that we have to work with are all by definition very far away from us. You know, the quote-unquote close ones are millions of miles away, so the random ones we have to experiment on are all much farther than that. So actually, the easiest part of the experiment for NASA was saying, hey, let's crash a satellite into an asteroid and see if we can change its path. (laughs) The hard part was picking the right asteroid that would get us any kind of useful data. And so what they ended up choosing was actually a pair of asteroids, or basically an asteroid with its own moon. They're named Didymus and Dimorphus, with the larger Didymus being about half a mile wide and its moon Dimorphus being about 560 feet wide. And they figured this was a great choice because while Didymus's orbit around the solar system is very large and therefore hard to predict, Dimorphus's tiny orbit around Didymus is very tight and stable which means we can crash into the little one and get a much better idea of how much of an effect we had on it. Mm. Of course, we still want them to be as close as possible to us for the best possible measurements. So they've timed all this to coincide with a flyby that's about to happen on September 26th when Didymus and Dimorphus will pass within 6.7 million miles of Earth. At that time, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, spacecraft, We'll smash into Dimorphos, and fingers crossed, we expect to see Dimorphos's orbit shorten by several minutes as the moon moves closer to its big brother. Hmm. But again, 6.7 million miles away. So, first of all, in order to get out there in time, DART had to be launched last November atop a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket at the Vandenberg base in California. 
Fortunately, observations in late July from both the Lowell Discovery Telescope in Arizona and the Magellan Telescope in Chile have confirmed that our calculations back then were correct, and hey. Dart and Dimorphos are still very much on a collision course. Ah, uh, hooray! Yeah. <laughs> Which was luckier than it sounds, because aside from the math of guessing an asteroid's orbit, we also had to make sure that we got a close look at the asteroid pair right before impact so we could get a really precise measurement of the orbit right before impact. Except, sky-watching conditions at this time of year are not favorable due to a couple of factors. Number one, summer nights are shorter. Number two, the weather at this time of year is unpredictable, both in Arizona and Chile. And number three, there's the simple reality that NASA doesn't own these telescopes and has to share them with all the other scientists who want to use them at the same time. <laughs> Which is really funny to think about, like uh -huh. NASA having to get in line and basically be like, can we please use your telescope <sighs> for like, you know, saving humanity or whatever? <laughs> But of the six half nights of observation time that they were granted, they only lost one night due to bad weather. And that was enough to confirm that everything is on track and for them to get all the data they needed about Dimorphos's current orbit. And I assume they're going to face the same set of issues when they want to make their observations after impact. But for whatever reason, they seem to think that's going to be easier, maybe because by then we'll be into fall and it won't be as tricky. Either way, you know, we're about to smash some stuff, which is cool. I mean, they didn't talk about DART itself a whole lot in the article, like the particular specifications that make it ideal for smashing. But, uh, you know, I hope they at least put like a little confetti release or something on it to make it fun. You know, <laughs> it's expensive and they're going to just destroy it. So, Well, I know there's also been a lot of chatter around certain asteroids being like huge deposits for rare minerals or even, right. you know, precious metals. So that may be where the natural, you know, <laughs> capitalistic uh, partnership is going to come in. So it feels like you just watched Don't Look Up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually have haven't seen that. Is that what the movie's about? Well, yeah, basically there's a horrible everyone dies asteroid coming to Earth and we have the chance to divert it, but then a bunch of rich people are like, but what if instead we captured it because it's worth a lot of money? Wow. And then, of course, they fail and everyone dies. But... <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> well, it wasn't much of a reach to uh, yeah. consider villains in the story having that strategy. Yeah. It's, it's a comedy, but it doesn't have a happy ending. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, we're going to take a bit of a departure here. Have either of you ever met your doppelganger? I, uh, I've been told I look like people, but I've never met anyone that yeah. I look like. Okay. Not exactly, but, you know, people that look close enough, and then I'm kind of like, that's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> Get off my face, bro. <laughs> I, I, I have this memory, and it's been so long ago, I can't even remember if it's real or not, but I could swear that I was watching, like, America's Funniest Home Videos or something where they just had, like, clips of people in situ in the 90s or something, and there was this one girl who was, like, exactly like me and sounded like me me and I was just unmoored. It was so disorienting and it mm. happened so quickly that I didn't know if anybody else saw it anyway. But we all believe and agree that doppelgangers existing is a thing, right? <laughs> oh, sure. From a genetic variation standpoint, there's just only so many faces that can exist. Like, there's definitely going to be people out there who look a lot like you. Well, it sounds like someone may have read this offering from Gizmodo. That I didn't, reads... but I'll happily sound like I did. <laughs> <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. You and your doppelganger might have more in common than just looks. 
And it all has to do with exactly what you pinpointed, genetic variation. So, you know, they've got a few pictures of lookalike pairs and they've got some ones that are, you know, pretty right on. But you can also tell they're obviously different people. But we do have some new research that suggests that lookalikes with incredibly similar faces tend to share many genetic variants and variants that don't just seem to shape their appearance, but general aspects of their life. Hmm. But at the same time, other important influences such as the microbiome appear to contribute little to their symmetry. The study author Manel Esteller, a geneticist and director of the Joseph Carreras Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona, is interested in what makes people the way they are. So in 2005, he and his colleagues published research showing that identical twins were not as identical as they appear at first glance. So while they had the same basic genetic patterns, they differed noticeably in their epigenetics, which are changes in how our genes express themselves, which are usually caused by environmental or behavioral factors like smoking or age. So in this new research that was published in Cell Reports, Esteller's team wanted to look at the other side of the coin, people who look so similar that they could be twins but aren't actually related. Hmm. And to do this, they turned to the work of Canadian photographer Françoise Brunel, who has been documenting doppelgangers around the world as a long-running project. So with his help, they were able to get in touch with 32 pairs of lookalikes who were willing to offer their time and a spit sample so the researchers could take a peek at their DNA and other inner workings like the community of microbes living in their mouth. So Brunel's project relies on a subjective interpretation of people's similarity. But to find the most identical, non-identical people, Esteller's team ran people's photos through three different facial algorithms. And out of the original 32, 16 pairs were deemed to completely match by all three programs, so the researchers focused the bulk of their study on them. Hmm. The results were that these lookalike humans had similar genetic sequences and are therefore like virtual twins, while their epigenetic and microorganism flora profiles differentiate them. So it's almost like a chemical fingerprint analysis, right? Mm -hmm. They did note that this genetic similarity did not stop at facial appearance. So compared to non-lookalike pairs, for instance, doppelgangers were more likely to have similar levels of education, height, weight, even smoking history. Hmm. The researchers took pains to make sure the doppelgangers were not unknowingly closely related. So while the pairs did tend to share, <laughs> you know, the same country of origin or self-described ethnic background, they were not any more related to each other than pairs randomly selected from the same population. In other words, there are so many people on the planet that the system is now repeating itself. Ooh, we've Ooh. run out. <laughs> Y'all, we ran out. That's pretty much it. Like the password generator is starting to repeat itself. So there could be other far-reaching implications of this in similar research. If it's true that our genes are so influential to facial appearance, then it could very well be someday to accurately reconstruct the unknown face of a criminal through DNA left at a crime scene. Apparently, that's what the team is thinking. I know we've already started to see like these AI reconstructions of famous historical figures, but this could be even more precise and specific. Yeah, but also if the AI is not smart enough to be able to know that these two people are different people, that's also scary. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the facial recognition is wrong out of 16 cases. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Exciting. I mean, if you thought that wrongful imprisonment was an mm -hmm. issue before, but, you know, violent crime and justice aside, health-wise, 
we mm. could make it possible that a person's face could provide clues about their genetics, including the presence of high-risk variants for disease like diabetes or dementia. So early diagnosis and treatment would definitely be a good thing. Well, I would like to meet my doppelganger. It does sound fun. Like, I always wished when I was a kid that I had a twin. Like, it felt like you could do so many shenanigans with a twin. <laughs> and I'm sure that if I actually had a twin, I would, it would get old really fast. But yeah, I, yeah, I've always seen twins as being kind of extra sensory, just extra. I mean, right. I guess literally a twin is an extra. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from LiveScience.com. It's titled, Lab-Made Mouse Embryos Grew Brains and Beating Hearts Just Like the Real Thing. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So the lab-made embryos crafted without any eggs or sperm and incubated in a device that resembles a fast-spinning Ferris wheel full of tiny glass vials <laughs> survived for 8.5 days. Oh. And that's nearly half the length of a typical mouse pregnancy. Oh, wow. In that time, a yolk sac developed around the embryos to supply nutrition, and the embryos themselves developed digestive tracts, neural tubes, or the beginnings of the central nervous system, Whoa. beating hearts and brains with well-defined subsections, including the forebrain and midbrain, all of which was reported in a study published Thursday in the journal Nature. Senior study author Magdalena Zernica Goetz, a developmental and stem cell biologist with labs at the University of Cambridge, UK, and the California Institute of Technology, said in a statement, This has been the dream of our community for years and a major focus of our work for a decade, and finally, we've done it. The new work produced very similar results as an earlier study published August 1st in the journal Cell, which was led by Jacob Hanna, an embryonic stem cell biologist at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel and co-author of the New Nature paper. Although the two recent studies produced similar embryos, the experiments started out slightly differently. In the cell study, the researchers started by coaxing mouse stem cells into a naive state from which they could morph into any cell type, such as heart, brain, or gut cells. Ooh. From there, the team divided these naive cells into three groups. In one group, they switched on genes to form the placenta, and in another, they switched on genes to make the yolk sac. The last group they left alone to develop into embryos. Zernika Goetz's research group, on the other hand, began with three mouse stem cell types, rather than starting with only naive cells. One type of stem cell gave rise to the embryo, while the other two morphed into the placental tissues and yolk sac. Throughout the experiment, they observed how these three stem cell types interacted, exchanging chemical messages and physically butting up against each other in the glass vials. Studying such exchanges could give hints as to how the earliest stages of embryonic development unfold in humans and what happens when things go awry. In both the cell and nature studies, the resulting synthetic embryos closely resembled natural embryos, albeit with some slight differences and defects in how the tissues self-organized. However, in both experiments, a very low proportion of the stem cells actually gave rise to embryos, suggesting that the efficiency of both systems could be improved. In addition, neither set of synthetic embryos survived to the ninth day of development, an obstacle that would need to be overcome in follow-up studies. <laughs> yeah, James, they died. That's an obstacle. <laughs> yeah, a pretty big problem, right? <laughs> With the generation of life. Mm -hmm. And the last line of the article ends, the research also raises ethical questions <laughs> about how and if such technology might be applied to human cells in the future. Yep. Does it? Does it maybe? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. I mean, 
That concession to the obvious was a really nice way to end, especially given all the very careful treading around. Yeah, they didn't make it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we just we did recently have the first full grown calf birth from a artificial womb that happened a Ooh. few months ago. Mm-hmm. So I think they started with like a real animal, you know, and put it in an artificial womb. But you've right. got both of those those technologies progressing and. <sighs> Put them together, man. It's like peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, delicious. Yummy. Tanks of growing humans just ready to be organ harvested for our... (laughs) I mean, no. You're way ahead of us, We'll we'll only use this for good. Why would I suspect (laughs) otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. We we have a very good track record of that with our science. Gosh, even just the phrase synthetic embryo. That's wild, y'all. Yeah, Yeah, it, it really, really is. Next link. <laughs> I, I'm just overwhelmed. Let's just move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next link. All right. Well, get ready to get gross with this article from Science Alert called Mucus is so handy that we evolve it over and over again. <laughs> and, and it opens pretty much the way you'd expect it to, though maybe not the way you'd want it to. Quote, <laughs> The animal kingdom is practically dripping in mucus, (laughs) which is true. All animals have mucus. And the point here is that mucus is interesting because most of the time when creatures have similar body parts or bodily functions, it's because they share a common ancestor. You know, sometimes that common ancestor is way back, which is why pretty much everything has a beating heart and a circulatory system. But generally speaking, we can trace it. In the case of mucus, however, A research team from the University at Buffalo has just published a paper showing that there is no common mucus gene and that it must therefore have evolved independently more than a dozen times in the animal kingdom. Now, on the one hand, this isn't actually as surprising as it sounds because it turns out there are actually lots of different kinds of mucus, even in our own bodies. You know, the mucus in our nose isn't actually the same as the mucus in our digestive tract or many other places the article lists. Some mucus binds to itself, some mucus naturally binds to the surface of certain cell membranes, and they're all made up of different proteins, even though they all have that same slimy mucus property. Hmm. So lead researcher Omer Gokumen decided that the first step was figuring out what made a protein be slimy or not. And his team found that almost any non-mucin protein can evolve into a slimy mucin protein when certain chains of amino acids are doubled up or repeated. And this actually explains a lot because duplication errors are relatively common mutations. Overall, the team found that proteins containing the organic acid proline are most likely to go gooey over time. And this means it can happen spontaneously in tons of different body parts and animals that have nothing to do with each other. So one example, which happens to be the first one that led the team to this discovery, is that the gene that codes for mouse saliva, which is apparently somewhat mucousy, I've never been licked by a mouse, but they tell me, (laughs) it shares a common ancestor with the gene that codes for human tears, which, of course, do not have any slimy properties, but not with human eye gunk, which apparently evolved on its own after diverging from the genes that made mouse spit. Now, To be fair, convergent evolution certainly isn't unheard of. Bat wings and bird wings, for example, also evolved independently. And there are many other cases where something is just so useful that different creatures manage to settle on the same basic idea. But this is the first time that it has been found in such a huge variety of types and places 
And it does indicate that mucus is incredibly important to survival. On the flip side, Gokumen points out, this does leave the door open a little wider for malfunction, where mucus evolution goes off the rails in a particular creature, either occurring too much or in the wrong type of tissue. And he theorizes that this could maybe even provide a clue toward the development of certain types of cancers that seem strangely spontaneous and prevalent across a number of species. Hmm. Like, he's not necessarily saying mucus causes cancer, but rather that some of these cancers may develop in this same fashion with a doubling up Hmm. mutation of a common protein. But, you know, regardless, the takeaway here is that mucus is apparently great for all creatures, And it's kind of a mystery why we're not all just walking balls of slime. (laughs) Like, we should have mucus in every body part all the time, is what they're saying. Well, I mean, if you want to know what that existence is like, you have only to Google the hagfish and be sure to do that (gasps) after lunch. Right, right, right. I think I've Mm. heard of that one. No, that's different from a blobfish, isn't it? It is different. Mm -hmm. I won't spoil the surprise for you. (laughs) I'll Google a hagfish later. Do I need to be off my work computer for this? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, we're going to keep it a little gross with a Guardian article called Insects Could Give Meaty Taste to Food and Help Environment, Scientists Find. And specifically, we're talking about flavorings made from mealworms. We're hoping they could one day be used on convenience food as a source of protein. I mean, they're kind (laughs) of already using bugs in a lot of stuff anyway. Yeah. If they're not like talking about, you know, here's your protein bar made entirely of mealworms, if it's just (laughs) flavorings and colorings, I'd be like, you could be feeding me that stuff now. I wouldn't know. Well, you've hit upon the human psychology that they're really aiming to target here, right? Like, we do know that mealworms have been used as mostly snacks for pets or even bait for fishing, but they Hmm. have a potential as a food source for humans to get the recognizable flavors of meat without the harmful impacts upon the climate, as well as direct air and water pollution of beef, pork, and other animal-based foods. Edible insects like mealworms and crickets are superfoods that have long been enjoyed by communities in Asia, Africa, and South America, but people in Europe and North America are a little more squeamish about eating insects, despite recent forays by restaurants and supermarkets into providing insect options for consumers. So what we're hoping to do is use mealworms as a meat-like flavoring to bridge this gap. There's a new study that found flavors released when mealworms were heated with sugars can have proteins and sugars interacting and caramelizing in a range of meat-like and savory flavors. And they even found that different cooking processes produce different results, like steamed mealworms give off a kind of sweet corn-like aroma. But if you roast and deep fry them, it has more of a similarity with shrimp. And how did they determine this? Well, a panel of volunteers were used in sniff tests to ascertain the most meat-like flavors of those concocted. I hope they were compensated accurately. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, global production of food is responsible for about a third of all greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere. And raising animals for meat is responsible for the majority of those emissions. Mm -hmm. So avoiding meat and dairy products is the single best way to reduce your environmental impact. But meat eating and dairy consumption is still super popular in the West and even has more traction among an emerging wealthy class in China and India. 
But, you know, insects, we can raise them in vast numbers and small spaces with a fraction of the pollution of traditional meat. And listen, if it gives me an MSG alternative, like shrimp flavor, but adds protein and it's for mealworms in my fried rice, hook it up, man. I'm ready. I'm always shocked by the concept of shrimp flavored anything. Like I, my husband gets shrimp flavored <laughs> chips from the Asian food store. Oh, yeah. Them. Those big foamy bits. Yeah. But I'm also like, there's no beef flavored chips. There's no chicken flavored chip. Like why shrimp? Why is that such a thing? Because I don't, I don't it's get so it. flippin' tasty. And you know there is beef flavored and chicken flavored snack stuff. It's just probably like if you go to the UK and get different crisp flavors. Their Lay's selection is redonkulous overseas. Do they do they have like a roast beef and cheddar chip flavor? Almost certainly, or like an au <laughs> yeah. jus. And I, I know in the 80s or 90s, you ever had chicken in a biscuit, those crackers? I, I have not, but I think I've heard of them. All right. <laughs> it's real, it's there, and if you don't like shrimp, that's okay. But I'm really proud of your husband for eating Asian shrimp chips. Those are oh, hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he spent a good part of his childhood in Japan, so he has like this ingrained early imprinting on he Japanese He got the palate, where, yeah. Yeah. I, but see, and, but, and, and my response is also like, if you handed me a bag of beef-flavored chips, I don't think I'd want to eat those either. <laughs> I would just go eat a steak. Like, I don't know why you would want to reduce your meat content with some potato starch. Like, I just, why don't I just go eat the meat? I like shrimp. Why don't I just go have a skewer of shrimp? You can't bring those into the movie theater as easily. I suppose that's true. Well, you, you can. They just don't, they frown on it. <laughs> They'd smell you immediately. Yes, they would. Oh. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from JSTOR Daily, and it's titled Keeping Time with Incense Clocks. Ooh. So how do you know what time it is? Throughout history, we've traced the hours with shadows, sand, water, springs and wheels, and now oscillating crystals. We've even planted <laughs> clock gardens full of blossoms that open and close at each hour of the day. Anything that moves with regularity can become a timepiece. But there's only one type of timekeeper we know of driven by fire, which is the incense clock. The incense clock takes the form of a maze of incense with a tiny ember slowly burning through it. Early in the Qing dynasty, incense clocks burned all night in Beijing's tall drum tower, measuring out the time until the beating of the huge drum announced the end of the night watch. According to historian Andrew B. Liu, Incense has been used to measure time since at least the 6th century when the poet Yu Jianwu wrote, By burning incense, we know the o'clock of the night. With graduated candle, we confirm the tally of the watch. Hmm. The incense clock takes the basic concept, timing by combustion, and elevates it to a new level of gorgeous complexity. In the bottom tray, you'll find a bite-sized shovel and damper. Above that, a pan of wood ashes for laying out the incense trail, then stacked on top an array of stencils for laying out the labyrinths. As Silvio Bedini, historian of scientific instruments, explains in his extensive study of the use of fire and incense for time measurement, the variety allows for seasonal variation, longer paths to be burned through the endless winter nights while shorter ones serve for summer. To set the clock, start by smoothing the ashes with the damper until they are perfectly flat. Select your stencil, then use the sharp edge of the shovel to carve out a groove following the pattern and fill it with incense. Finally, cap it with the lacy lid to vent the smoke and control the flow of oxygen. To track smaller intervals of time, place small markers at regular points along the path. 
Some versions had little chimneys dispersed across the lid, allowing the hour to be read based on which hole the smoke was venting through. And some users may have used different kinds of incense at different parts of the path or inserted scented chips along the way so they could tell the time with just a sniff. But just in case the scent of sandalwood wasn't enough of an alert, people also contrived to create incense-based alarm clocks. A dragon-shaped fire clock offers a particularly beautiful example. The dragon's elongated body formed an incense trough, across which stretched a series of threads. Small metal balls were attached to opposite ends of the threads, and dangling below the dragon's belly, their weight held the threads taut. As the incense burned down, the heat broke the threads, freeing the balls to clink into a pan below and sound the alarm. Bedini offers a description of incense clocks written by Father Gabriel de Miguelhin, a Jesuit missionary to China in the mid-1660s. De Miguelhin reported that he himself had made several clocks for the Chinese emperor, and he had observed the construction of many more, including a much more pedestrian version of the fire clock concept based around a spiral of hardened incense paste. They are suspended from the center and they are lighted at the bottom end from which the smoke issued slowly and faintly, following all the turns which has been given to this coil of powdered wood, on which there are ordinarily five marks to distinguish the five parts of the evening or night. This method of measuring time is so accurate and certain that no one has ever noted a considerable error. The literate, the travelers, and all those who wish to arise at a precise hour for some affair suspend at the mark which they wish to arrive at, a small weight which, when the fire has arrived at this spot, invariably falls into a basin of brass which has been placed below it and which awakens the sleeper by the noise which it makes in falling. By the 1600s, mechanical clocks were available, but only for the very wealthy. Timing by incense was cheap, accessible, and, as the passage notes, perfectly functional. Hence, no doubt, its surprising persistence. Well into the 20th century, writes Liu, coal miners continued to use the glow of incense to track the time they spent underground, while tea roasters used them to approximate the time it took to toast batches of tea. Huh, that's so elegant. I would love to see these, like, I don't know, mechanical, high art clocks kind of come back into function. Yeah, that would be really cool. I mean, I imagine there's a fire hazard. And also, (laughs) like, if you're all sharing the same incense clock and you're all getting up at different times, you have everybody's little balls falling at different times. And you're like, oh, no, it's not mine. I hate that guy. But yeah, I'm uh, searching Amazon for incense clocks right now. And uh, oh, there is one single mold you could use to make something. But that's about it. There's no like actual devices. That's too bad. I look forward to the Kickstarter. I bet Etsy's got some. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include this smoke could make U.S. troops invisible. Was King Arthur a real person? And the civilizing of laughter. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.